Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Southridge. Excited to see you this morning. How are we doing this morning? Excellent. All right. All right. Man, we are awake. It is hot out there. How many of this series has been a hot series for you? There we go. All right. How many of you, this has been uncomfortable at times? All right. Okay. I'm not the only one. I was really nervous after last week. I was like, let's see if anybody comes back. So you guys showed up. Thank you for coming back. I was really nervous. I was telling my wife, I was like, I don't know. Maybe we should just go to uh, have breakfast at Bill's Cafe or something. I don't know if anybody's showing up. And we'll just live stream or something. But you all came back. You're a glutton for punishment. So it's your fault. All right. It's not mine. But welcome. We're in a series called Hot Topics. We started the first week with God and government. We moved in last week. We talked about Christianity, homosexuality. And we're really starting with this big idea, and this is it. Who is right about what is right and wrong? That's really what the big question is. We're asking, who is right about what is right and what is wrong? And so as we dive into these topics, we're looking at topics that culture, our society, is wrestling with. And today we're going to talk about a topic that's simply about refuge and refugees. Because there is today a refugee crisis. You look at what's happening across the Middle East and what's happening in and across Europe, you're seeing a crisis of refugees. And then you come over into the United States and it's making national headlines, it's making news, it's one where there's a lot of people that are torn on which side. The humanitarian side of us says we need to be open and we need to allow people in, but then there's the part that looks at our children and looks at our schools and we see what happened in San Bernardino and we look at what happened in uh, Orlando, we see what happened in New York, and then we look over across the the ocean, we see what happened in London, what happens in open-air markets in Germany, and all of a sudden, what happens to you happens to me in my heart. I want to close off. I want to say no to some things. I want to have some barriers put up. I want to say, no, let's close. Let's get some borders. Let's put some restrictions. And all of a sudden, we can kind of miss the fact of what God is doing in in our time and the great opportunity that is in front of us. Can anybody tell me where in our nation this quote resides? I'm going to read the quote and you just tell me out loud. You can just shout it out where you think this quote is. Here's the quote. Bring me your huddled masses longing to breathe free air. Does anybody know where it's at? Statue of Liberty. As the people would come into what was early in our nation's history, Ellis Island, that they would come in from across the globe. They were seeking rest, seeking sanctuary. That quote was etched on. It's actually a quote from a book that was written in 1888 by a woman. Simply, her name is Emma Lazarus, and she wrote it. And then the construction crews really liked that quote, and they want it etched on Lady Liberty as you came in. Bring me your huddled masses longing to breathe free air. December 2009 was a special year for Jane and I. We had just kind of been married almost a year at that point, and uh, there was supposed to be a special ceremony that my wife was going to be a part of. My wife did not grow up in the United States. She actually grew up in the Philippines until she was 15 years old. Many people are like, your wife doesn't have an accent. Just get her around other Filipinos. It comes out. It's great. Or get her upset, and you will get a full load of it. But she never gets upset. Never. Ever. Ever. Because she's in the back. She's looking at me. You never. She's perfect. But when she does, 
because all of a sudden the Tagalog just flows. The accent is just there. But she was born and raised in the Philippines. So when she came over to the United States, there was a process to become a U.S. citizen. And so in December 2009, we went to a special ceremony. I had never been a part of anything like this. We went to a packed out high school in San Jose. And across the high school, it was what was called the naturalization ceremony. This is she's going to become a U.S. citizen. And I was kind of looking around, never been a part of something. I walk into this room, and I'm just amazed by all the people that were there. People from all different parts of the globe that were there. Different countries represented. Different nationalities. Different languages. And then when they do the final pledge, and then they tell them they're U.S. citizens, I was not expecting what was about to happen. At that moment, there were shouts. At that moment, there were people hugging. They were crying because guess what? We don't understand this. Those of us that have grown up in the United States, we kind of are almost desensitized to how good we have it to how much we have. And sometimes we can almost be ungrateful for all that we've given because we take it for granted. And so we looked at all these people that they didn't have those freedoms. And for my wife growing up in the Philippines, she would say, if you got to go to the United States, it was like you won the lottery. You were wealthy. You were rich. And I was like, and I asked her, I was like, well, why would you be wealthy? Why would you be rich? She was like, it wasn't the fact that you had cars or houses, the fact that you were now in America. She said people would send us clothes from America and we just wanted to smell the clothes. To just, we could just smell America on the clothes. And we kind of laugh and it's kind of funny to think about, but the reality is for most of the world, that's how it is to come to our country. But then as we look at the news, all of a sudden there's a lot of reports about refugees. Now let me say this, I'm saying multiple times. We're not talking about immigration and we are not talking about illegals. We are talking about refugees this morning. And there is a big difference because I'm looking at the news and I'm seeing refugees being lumped into a category that they shouldn't be lumped in. And I'm going to tell you why. We're going to go into it this morning. What should a Christ follower's response be? And as I'm talking, would you please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 23. And in Exodus chapter 23, we're going to see something very profound happens here in Scripture as we talk about refuge and refugees. And what should a Christ-like example be? Because right now, as we look at the news, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of uh, of negativity that's just being pushed because fear sells. Fear sells. And so as we look at Exodus chapter 23, notice if you would, verse number 1, and we're just going to read a few verses, and I love this passage of Scripture, and you'll see why. Beginning verse number 1, if you didn't have a Bible, that's all right. It'll be up on the screen. Here's what it says, verse number 1. You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify and dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. You shall not pervert the judgment of the poor in his dispute. Keep yourself from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. And you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Notice if you would, verse number 9. Also, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Now, this is God talking to the children of Israel. The children of Israel just come out of the nation of Egypt. For 400 years, they had been in bondage. They had been slaves to a foreign government. 
And so now they're coming into the promised land. They're coming into the land that was given. It was, it was promised to Abraham. And so they're about to come into this land. And God is telling them, hey, I want you to remember something. Listen. He's saying, hey, remember how you were a slave. Remember how you were treated. Here's how they were treated. They were treated as slaves. They were treated as a cheap labor force. Their men were conscripted to labor. Their women were taken however they pleased. They were forced into hard labor. They were forced to do things for the Egyptians. They were forced to build things. And so we see how it started was there was a man by the name of Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his 11 brothers. He was sold and he ended up in the nation of Egypt. And in Egypt, a man by the name of Potiphar buys Joseph. Potiphar, he is the chief of the military. And so Potiphar buys Joseph. Joseph is serving him. And Joseph does a good job. And the Bible says that Potiphar had a wife who began to lust after Joseph. Her name, we call her Potiphar. Okay? And that was Potiphar's wife. And she would say to Joseph, hey, lie with me. And Joseph said, I can't do this thing. So she lied about Joseph. And so Potiphar had Joseph put into prison. And in prison, he's in a military prison where he serves another several years. And then after coming out of prison, he is then made the prime minister of Egypt. The Pharaoh at that time sees that what Joseph does for the nation. In Joseph, he saves the nation from a famine, from a a famine that just kind of ravages the rest of the world at that time. Even Joseph's family where they lived, they had no food, so they came to Egypt and there was this wonderful story where they were restored. Well, um, where the Pharaoh loved Joseph, so he told Joseph, bring your family here. And the Pharaoh gave Joseph the choice land or the special land. It was called the land of Goshen. And that's where Joseph's family was. There were 70 of them. But over 400 years, they estimated they were closer to 3 million. But the Bible says in Exodus chapter number one, we don't have time, but you can look it up. Verse number eight, the Bible says, there arose a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. And this Pharaoh, he looked up and he didn't know the generations because now several hundred years have passed. And he looks at his nation of Egypt and then he looks at the nation of Israel, the Hebrews, and he sees that the Hebrews are bigger and stronger. So the Hebrews are in a foreign country and all of a sudden the Pharaoh is threatened by those in his country. So what does Pharaoh do? He first starts with the midwives and he tells all the midwives, when you deliver the babies of the Hebrews, if it's a female, you will keep it alive. If it's a male, you're to kill it. Well, the, the Bible says that these Hebrew mid, uh, these midwives feared God, so they disobeyed the king. Kind of goes back to our God and government, week number one. But they did that, but then Pharaoh noticed what they were doing, so Pharaoh then commanded the people that if they had a daughter, they could keep the daughter alive, but the boys needed to be executed, thrown into the river, executed. And there was a genocide that happened. Today, fast forward to what's going on now. You have people leaving Iraq. You have people pushed out of Syria. You have people pushed out of Afghanistan. You have people pushed out of the uh, Republic of Congo. You have people pushed out of Somalia. You have people pushed out. So you have uh, displaced peoples by the millions all over the world. Germany has taken in over 9,000 refugees. Now, let me say this. I'm going to say it again and again because there's a lot of bleeding over and a blurring of the lines. Refugees are not the same as an immigrant or an illegal. I just need you to clarify that because it's going to paint what the media is talking about, what you're seeing, and how a Christ follower's response should be. So when we look at this, we're looking at refugees. And right now, it seems that there's so much talk and it seems like, what does the United States do? First of all, please understand, the United States, there are 361 different people groups in our nation already. 361. There's only two countries that has more different languages, 
different cultures and different ethnicities than the United States. And that's China and India, okay? They have more than the United States. So what's happening now is an awesome opportunity for the church. You say, what do you mean? The nations are now our neighbor. The nations are now our neighbor. You say, what does that mean? It means that you don't have to be called to a Muslim country like Iraq or Afghanistan to reach a Muslim. It means you don't have to be called to Vietnam or Thailand to go reach a Buddhist. It means you don't have to be called to India to reach a Hindu. They're coming to us. Now, the church is kind of mixed on its reaction right now. And I get it. We see somebody that moves in the neighborhood. Or one thing that really grieves me is you see somebody on Snapchat and they see a Hindu person wearing a turban and all of a sudden they think it's fun to put on Snapchat. Oh no, somebody in a turban is going to the bathroom and then coming back. Whew, I'm still alive. Put it on Snapchat. And to see that permeating our culture, to see that type of a response. My wife and I, many of you may know this, she's Filipino, but uh, some may not. And so when we first got married, I would start to, start to be around her and I'd be like, man... Why? I can't believe that person treated us like that. And she would say, what are you talking about? I was like, you know what they just said or what they just did. And she was like, oh, I'm just kind of used to it. I was like, what, what do you mean you're used to it? And, and don't take this the wrong way. You take it exactly how I'm going to say it. She said, it's a white people thing. She said, we're just used to it. And I was like, really? She said, yeah. And for some of us, and you want to write this down, this would be something that would be good. Exposure expands perspective. I had one paradigm, one way of looking at people until I married somebody of a different culture, a different ethnicity. Somebody that saw the world in a different way. And it opened my eyes. It expanded my thinking. So what I'm hoping to do, what I'm praying to do is this morning to expand our thinking because the church has got a moment here. And it's a missional moment. Our church exists for a mission. We say we exist to live by faith, to be known by love, and to be a voice of hope in our city. But what's happening now, we have this refugee crisis, and the church is like, well, I'm not really sure. Let's have this type of border, and let's not let this person in. And we're confusing a refugee with an immigrant and an illegal. And they're not the same. It's a very different category that we're talking about. We're talking about people that were forced out of their home. They didn't leave willingly. These are people that literally in the middle of the night, they were grabbing whatever they could to flee the bombings, to flee from their daughters and their wives being raped and being molested. They fleeing from keeping their children being sold into sex trafficking, from their men being conscripted to fight in armies, something our nation knows nothing about that is happening right now at this very moment. And then these people are getting on sinking ships to try to escape, to try to find a better world. And yet we step back in our comfortable houses, our air-conditioned rooms and we look at the TV stations and then all of a sudden something starts happening in our heart and your heart and in my heart and there's this wall going up around my heart and it's a wall of fear and can I say this why are we punishing the victims of ISIS for the sins of ISIS I'm going to say it again and I want it to sink in deep why are we punishing the victims of ISIS for the sins of ISIS where we see countries coming in. And I, and I get it. You're hearing all this news. You're hearing and you're looking at what's happening in Europe. And oh man, this person drove a truck through these innocent people. But we need to understand, and I keep saying it, refugees are not immigrants or illegals. It's a different group. Here's one thing you need to understand. Many of the arguments that come up is like, well, refugees are going to be a drain on our nation's economy. 
First of all, please note that a refugee is different, and they do receive some government assistance, but here's how much they receive on average is $4,800. How much they pay in taxes is $9,000. So it's not the drain on the economy. Matter of fact, the exact opposite, one of the largest companies in the world is founded by a refugee, Sergey Brenov. It's a little company called Google. You may have heard it. All of a sudden, it's not a drain on our economy. So let's not look at a refugee as somebody who's draining us, okay? That is a different argument when it comes to illegals and immigrants that we need to talk about. When it comes to refugees, it's a different thing. We say, well, well, I, I just wish we could take in just Christian refugees. I'm glad you brought that up because between 2006 to 2015, our nation has taken in 291,285 Christian refugees. Let's think for a moment. Please engage your minds with me just for a second. The reality is a radical jihadist Muslim is not leaving the Middle East. Okay? They're not. Who's having to leave? The Christians. And our nation is taking in the most of them. Our country, the United States of America. You say, well, how many Muslims are coming in? There is 190,000 Muslims that are now coming in. So it's one of those things where we're looking at this refugee crisis. We're saying, well, how do we respond? And we say, well, well, I just think that some of these, some of these refugees, they've been radicalized and they're going to come into our country and then they're going to be like sleeper cells and they're going to get into our schools and they're going to get into our, our, our grocery stores and they're going to get into our, our homes and our churches and then they're going to do all this crazy stuff. Here's what I need you to understand. Each year there are 70 million people who visit our country from around the globe, 70 million, that they get a vacation visa or a tourist visa, they come in, 70 million, okay? To come in as a refugee, the process takes anywhere from three to five years to come in as a refugee. Let's just think for a second. If I'm a tourist and want to get into the country, I'm not picking the refugee route where I have to wait three to five years to get approved to get a ticket to be over here. And the screening you have to go through, you have to go through the CIA, you have to go through Interpol, you have to go through uh, uh, local governments, you have to go through all these agencies and you're highly scrutinized. Today we've been hearing that there's no screening. Now, for illegals and immigrants, it's different. But for refugees, there's so much scrutiny. Many refugees are spending, on average, five years in a refugee camp before they can ever come into the United States. These refugee camps are filled with drugs, gangs, violence, all kinds of inappropriate things are happening where these refugees are just waiting there, waiting to be screened. There's so many interviews. They check all their connections, and they're looking into their life, and they're trying to find what's going on. So we've got to step back and say, what does the church do about it? How does the church respond? And I wish we would look at the stories of the people and we'd be captured by the images. One image I'm going to put up on the screen right now because I need you to see it is an image that captured our hearts in 2015. It was this image of a Syrian boy who washed up on a beach. We'll put it up right now. What happened is we saw this image of a three-year-old boy. And what happens, church is we think, well, these are radicalized people that are coming into our country and not my neighborhood and not my city and not my town and not taking my taxpaying dollars. 60% of refugees are not men. They're women and children. And the humanity side of us should look at something like this and there should be a holy rage that rises up inside of us that says, why is there injustice in the world? When I see pictures like this, part of me wants to just get so angry because I have a little boy. I have two little boys. And you have 
children and you have grandchildren. And when we see this, something in should rise up. And you know why I don't like these images? Because for too long, it used to be a problem over there at the other side of the pond. It used to be the problem that's over there in the Middle East. They just need to figure it out over the oil. But all of a sudden, I see these images and no longer can I be ignorant of what's going on. Images like this take away my ability to be innocent. Because once I'm no longer ignorant, I can no longer be ignorant. Once I'm no longer ignorant, I'm not innocent anymore. It's the person that's being mugged on the side of the street and I just walk by. Once I'm aware of it, guess what? I'm, I'm called to action. We can't just sit by as we watch these things happen. That's somebody's son. It's somebody's grandson. That child is in the Imago Dei, the image of Jesus. And what happens too often, we care more about a playoff game, more about a Super Bowl, more about our jobs, more about our life than the fact that there are people that are hurting, that they didn't want to leave their home. My wife gives me the hardest time because I love Fresno. She's like, why do you love Fresno? It's hot. It smells. The air is not good. It's got all these chemicals in it. It's just like, she was telling me the other day, she was like, people are taking Pillsbury Doughboy cookies things, slicing up, putting it on a pan, sticking it in their car. They're baking cookies in their car. It's so hot. She's like, that's what's wrong with Fresno. I said, that's awesome. Like, that's ingenious right there. Like, that is amazing. That's why I like Fresno. She's like, no, now your car smells like a cookie. I was like, oh, dude, that's even better. I love where this is going. And all of a sudden, she's like, why do you like it? And I, you know why? It's home. It's just home. There's a part of each and every one of our souls that we're just longing for home. These people that are risking their lives and fleeing in the middle of the night to escape the persecution. Many of these are Christians. Does it mean Bible Christians? It just means that they don't follow uh, Islam. That's who these people are. And for us to say, no, not us, not here, not now, to, be, to, to stop, it, the underlying issue is really fear. We're really afraid of the way they dress. We're really afraid of the food they eat and their culture and their language. And so we see them in a store. And guess what? Stop for a second and put yourself in their shoes just for a moment and say, just think, they've left everything. Literally, they have nothing. So when a refugee comes to the United States, they work with an organization through the government. It's called World Relief. World Relief is a Christian organization. Here's the thing about refugees. They have to work with a local religious organization. Did you know that? It's called World Relief. That's, that's the only way in. That's, that's it. And it's a Christian organization. So what this Christian organization does is they say when these people get off the plane, they literally have nothing. So what they try to do is try to find a local church and say, hey, would you first go to their apartment? Would you make sure there's some food there? Would you maybe get some toys for the children? Maybe get some clothes? Would you then help them, A, find the schools? They don't know the language, so would you help them find an ESL class? Would you then show them where the shopping is? Maybe try to find a market that actually fits their dietary needs. Or would you be there at the airport with a sign that says their name? Because these people sometimes have lost everything. They have no family. They've escaped and they've said goodbye to anything that they knew as home. And now they're here in a foreign country. And guess what? If you come as a refugee, you have one year to get your green card and to get your job and to get established. Otherwise, you don't stay. They have one year. You know the pressure to learn the language? Do you know the pressure to to get your kids in school? Do you know that pressure? It's unbelievable pressure for these people to come. And yet too often the church can step back. And instead of engaging this, instead of stepping in and wading into this conversation, the church is stepping back and say, that's my tax dollars and I don't know. And they have to come in and fit my agenda. Instead, what's really keeping us back is fear. So this is either going to be the greatest moment in a missional movement 
or it's going to be our missing moment. So let me challenge our thinking. Just like the Pharaoh, there was two Pharaohs. One Pharaoh decided, hey, I'm going to welcome these people. We're going to do something. We're going to invite them in. We're going to, we're going to do something great. And you could still look at that and be like, oh, that's great, but I follow Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. In Matthew chapter number uh, 3, you can look at the story of Jesus. The, 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 the Magi have just come. And then the Bible says that Joseph gets a dream in the night. The angel appears to him and says, hey, tonight you need to flee because Herod's coming to execute all the boys in Bethlehem. So where did Mary and Joseph and Jesus go? They went to Egypt as refugees. Jesus is the ultimate refugee. He left heaven to come to earth, and then he left his, his hometown to go to a foreign country for a few years. Why? Because he had to, to escape the persecution. So what is the church going to do? And here's what we need to understand. Please write this down. The church is a refuge for the world, not from it. The church is a refuge for the world, not from it. We've gotten to the point where we just isolate ourselves, don't we? We've gotten to the point where we're like, well, we're going to guard them from any going to this type of education system. We're going to guard them from drugs. We're going to guard them from this. And we're just going to circle the wagons. And we're going to just kind of, this is, this is it. My little comfort zone. And nobody allowed different inside of the circle. This is what I like about our church. We're not a homogenous group. I mean, it's not just all one group. We're diverse, racially diverse, ethnically, sociologically diverse. We need to keep that diversity because it allows us to open up and allows us to share the good news of Jesus with people that are totally different than us, that think totally different than us, so that we can have a perspective. Because guess what? The way I see the world isn't how the world is. And the way you see the world is not how the world is. Because we've got confines and paradigms that we see the world through this lens. And it's good to have our paradigm shifted. It's good for us to get out of the United States to see how the real world actually is. Because until you leave this country, you don't understand how good and how amazing it is to be in the United States of America and all the stuff that God has given us and blessed us with. The fact that you didn't have to worry about coming to church tomorrow morning, we should thank God for. So now we understand that the nations are now our neighbors. But what's happening is that statistics show that Americans are now more afraid than any time since 9-11. We're more afraid. We've never been this afraid. But here's what's crazy. We live longer, we feel less pain, and we have more income, but yet we're still afraid. What's going on in the church? Why are we so fearful? Did not Jesus say, I have not given you the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind? So what's going on in the church? Here's this moment for us to step in and engage people, people that are lost, people that are lonely, people that this is, this is it for them. They've, they've left everything. They've come here to start a new life. And what are we doing? So the church needs to move from hostility to hospitality. We've got to move to the point where we say, you know what, there's around my heart, there's this fear, there's this, this thing that wants to put a wall between that person. But now I need to understand that, wait a minute, put myself in that person's shoes. Put myself in that person's situation. The Bible says, you know the heart of a stranger. So we have to ask ourselves, do I have the heart of a stranger? Am I willing to talk with somebody that's totally different than me? Somebody that looks differently? Somebody that wears clothes that are different than me? I talked to my dad about this exact same issue. My dad came over from Germany. I'm only second generation American. My wife is first generation. And so he came over from Germany. He said, when we got here, I didn't know the language. My clothes were different. So of course I got made fun of at school. Of course I got picked on. Of course we were different. Our food was different. Our clothes were different. Everything we did was different. So of course it was awkward. Of course it was hard. But we just kind of think, well, you're in America, lucky you. And we don't stop and think, wait a minute, this is a stranger. 
How do we treat a stranger? How, how do we show the love of Jesus to this person? But what's happening is because of fear, we're, we're missing out on a moment. Here, please write this down. We're only as strong as we are unafraid. We're only as strong as we are unafraid. I believe our fear is paralyzing the church. It's paralyzing our homes. It's paralyzing us from speaking out, from trying to make a difference, from trying to be heard. We're seeing all this stuff about the news, and we're hearing all this stuff about refugees, and we're not understanding what's actually going on. We think, well, man, we're letting in too many refugees. Too much of this is happening. If you're a conservative in this room, Ronald Reagan let in the most refugees of any president in our history, two million refugees. Okay? Obama led in 500,000. Current president's led in 250,000. Just put it all in perspective. This is not me trying to be political because we're not talking about politics. We're talking about people. Let's get off the politics. This is people. This is little three-year-old boys that are washing up on beaches. These are people that have a soul that's going to spend eternity somewhere, and yet the church wants to argue about politics? Can we knock it off? Can we stop and say that there's actually people who are going to spend eternity somewhere? That we've got a greater mission than our stinking politics? Because politics, we park our political ideology, uh, ideology at the door and we come here and we say, wait a minute, there's a people from a different people group that guess what? I'm not called to be a missionary in Iran, but guess what? They're coming here and I would never be able to preach the gospel to them. But guess what? Here, I get to take them a meal. I get to sit down with them and I get to actually talk to them about Jesus. And guess what? They can listen and not be worried about getting an honor killing or somebody slitting their throat, cutting their head, or stealing their family because here they have that freedom. But yet the church is stepping back and saying, I'm too afraid to do that. When is the church going to rise up and say, hey, we've given this freedom for a reason. It's a moment. It's a missional moment. But the church is missing it. Our church is missing it. This is at the core of who we are. But if we're going to get into our safe, isolated circle, this probably is not the church for you. We're a church that we take big leaps of faith. We risk it all. We bet the farm. We go all in, all out, all the time because the gospel is at stake here. We don't hold back. We go after the hurting. We go after the hopeless. We go after the lost. We go after those who are far from God because that's why we're here. We're not here to have a sweet little powwow with other little believers with our sweet little Bible study to sing Kumbaya. We're here to go to the needy. We're here to go to the helpless. We're here to make a difference and that's what we're all about. That's why we get up, we set up, we show up on a Sunday because this is what we're all about. This is what makes Southridge a difference kind of church. And if that's what you're about, this is your kind of place. That's why we exist. And I'm tired. I'm tired, church, of us getting into these little debates that have no kingdom impact. Write this down, please. Our proclivity for fear says a lot about the quality of our faith. I'll say it again. Our proclivity for fear says a lot about the quality of our faith. Do we not have a faith that is unstoppable, that is unshakable, that moves mountains? Do we not have a faith that can raise the dead to life? Do we not have a faith that can give sight to the blind? Do we not have a faith that can see kingdoms won for God? Do we not have a faith that is earth-shaking, window-rattling, that changes things? Is that not what we believe? Did Jesus not rise again on the third day? That is what we believe. Our faith is strong. It's not weak. So in this moment, with political division everywhere, let it not be 
in the church. Let the name of Jesus be the name that is exalted above anything else because that's where we stand on. That's what we need right now. So the church needs to stop being a refuge from the world and be a refuge for the world. Let the huddled masses come to us and let us help them. Let us feed them because Jesus said, as much as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. So when you serve, when you give, when you love, you're doing it for Jesus. It's not somebody who's got a different skin color, different background. It's for Jesus. We give, we love, we serve because of Jesus. Matthew 25, read it. It's the great commandment there that God gave us. And so that's why the church exists. That's what lights a fire. You wonder why millennials don't like church? Because we don't stand for anything. We don't do anything. We've lost relevance. Here there's a crisis of people washing up on beaches and the church is stepping back and saying, I don't know. Are you going to heaven? I don't, are you preordained? Are you predestined? Shut up. Like, there are people that are dying. Does it really matter? Let's go and get food to the starving. In parts of Africa, people are literally starving to death, and we have the word, and we're just stepping back saying, what could we do? We're doing nothing. Some of us, we're so afraid to even start giving or tithing or serving. You're too afraid to even be a greeter or a parking lot attendant to go in nursery. I don't know what we're afraid of. You're too afraid to go on a national night out and say, I'm going to help out and serve ice cream to my neighbors. I might have to get out of my comfort zone. Yes, let's get out of our comfort zone. No other time in history we've been so comfortable. And guess what it's doing to the church? Comfort is killing the church. It's gotten to the point where we're now fossilizing. We're wondering why 4,000 churches a year has closed their doors. And they probably should. They don't do anything. They don't stand for anything. And if we're going to be that church that doesn't stand for anything, doesn't do anything, we should close too. I'll go be a car salesman. I promise you I'll make way more money. So this is not about money for me. This is about a mission. And we can't miss this moment as a church. And so we see that, guess what? The exposure expands our perspective. So we can step back and say, you know what? Our faith is strong. Our faith is powerful. God is going to do something. But what are we going to use that powerful? Today, that power for. Today, you're seeing power used all over, and it's corrupting people. But we're supposed to use power not to overcome the weak, but to overcome the wicked. There is wickedness all throughout this land. We've got families in our church. You take in foster kids, and it breaks my heart, the children that you take in and the backgrounds and the homes that they're from. I just want to weep. I just want to cry that somebody would do that to a child. And so we got to step back and say, wait a minute. God gives us power. He said, Acts 1.8, and you shall receive my spirit, and you will receive my power. You're going to be my witness to the uttermost around the world. But God made it so easy. He brought the world to your neighborhood. The nations are a neighbor. You have people from all over the globe right next door to you. And you have the opportunity to use your love language, bake cake, bake cookies, bake brownies, or grill meat and take it over to them. Except if they're vegetarians. Don't grill meat, okay? Just saying, all right? Grill like uh, sweet potatoes or something. Take it over to them. But when it comes to people, what are we doing? So it's time to face our fears. Would you touch your neighbor and say, let's face our fears. Let's face our fears. Let's face it. Because fear always has power if it's left unspoken. So we're going to take back our fear. This message, I said it was all about refuge and refugees, but really it's actually entitled Fear's Last Stand. Because that's what fear is doing. You know why I love this Hot Topic series? You know why I love you, church? Is you guys show up even though you know this topics are going to kind of not maybe always align with you. There's a lot of churches that aren't going to talk about these topics that we've been covering because they're afraid they're going to lose half their membership, they're going to lose their funding, they're going to lose staff. 
We're just not afraid. Where the enemy roars, we run toward the roar. Where we're threatened, we push back. Because we believe there are no accidents. There's only appointments. We believe that everything that God is doing has led us for such a time as this. It's Esther in a pagan nation. It's Daniel in a lion's den. It's David staring down a giant. It's Paul being stoned to death, getting back up, going back to the city and reaching to Timothy. And the Timothy pastors a mega church in another city. That's what we do. That's what this faith is all about. And that's what's powerful about this moment. But are we going to say, this is where fear dies. Today, right here, right now, when I walk out of this room, I leave fear in this room. It's not going with me. He may have come with me in my car. He may be, uh, have been there in my marriage, afraid that I'm going to lose this person. He may have been there in my finances, afraid that I can't give. He may have been there in my time where I'm afraid that I can't serve. But guess what? Fear has to flee because my faith is too strong. My faith is getting bigger. And all of a sudden, my confidence is coming back in this crisis. That's what we need. And you will see a younger generation around you that says, guess what? The church is moving again. There's actually movement in this move. There's actually something happening that God is doing because this this refugee crisis is turning into the greatest move that God has ever wanted to work and do in you and through you. But here's what we need to understand. If you're going to face your fears, you need to understand what you don't face won't fall. If you're not going to face the church, friend, brother, sister, if you're not going to face it, it won't fall. 1 Samuel chapter number 17. If you want to turn there, you can. Otherwise, you don't have to. Familiar story. It's by, about a guy by the name of David and a giant named Goliath. The Bible says, in one of the early verses, says that Goliath shows up on the scene. He's almost 10 feet tall, 9 feet something, and it's just a huge giant of a man. And the Bible says that Goliath came 40 days. He kept showing up looking for somebody to fight, just saying, who's going to fight me? The Bible said that he would curse the, the Hebrews' God. He would defy that army, and he would threaten that army. And day after day after day after day, nobody would challenge Goliath. All of a sudden, there was a dude with some food. His name is David. David shows up with some Grubhub, and he's like, hey guys, I'm here with some bread, never knowing that he wasn't there to deliver bread, he was actually there to fight a battle. So you never know how God's going to use you in a little moment. God's going to take that moment and use it in a powerful way. And David was the only one willing to face his fear, because when you face it, that's when things fall. Is there a conversation you're afraid to have? Is there a phone call you're afraid to make? Is there a person you're afraid to talk to? Is there somebody you're afraid to witness to? This week, challenge yourself. Put it on your calendar that today I will talk to that person. Put the date on the calendar that this day I will call that person. I will make this right. I will confess that sin. I will go to that person because fear cannot stand in the face of our faith when we say, I'm going to face it. Fear has no power. Some of you are living under the power of constant fear and if you'll never face it, it won't fall. Goliath, do not fall unless somebody stands up. But here's the thing. David was the most unlikely, wasn't he? The most insignificant. The one nobody ever thought that's the guy that's going to take out Goliath. But then David does it, doesn't he? Let me fast forward the story in case you've never heard it. David takes out a giant with a slingshot. All right? And then as soon as he takes out the giant, this gets graphic, sorry, PG-13, he grabs Goliath's own sword, pulls it out, cuts off Goliath's head with his own sword. So the things that the enemy may send against you may be the very things that actually deliver you. 
Some of the things that you think are the worst thing to ever happen to you right now could be God working in a divine way to bring you to your divine destination. And so God could be using this refugee crisis in the greatest way to spark the greatest revival this world has ever seen. Not our nation, this world. Because we have ability to impact people that they've been closed off for the gospel for 20, 30, and 40 years. That now all of a sudden, they're open to the gospel. They can hear it without being afraid, without being threatened. And you can share Christ with them freely and openly. And so David cuts off his head. And I've always thought, imagine the rest of the army. His brothers were there, three of his brothers, they were there. I've always thought, what, are they, what were they thinking? And then it finally came to me. You know what everybody else was thinking once David took out Goliath? They were thinking, I could have done that. That's exactly what they were thinking. A slingshot? For real? Like, really? I didn't need a sword. I didn't need a spear. I didn't need a bow and arrow. I just need a slingshot? I just need to be Dennis the Menace for like five minutes with my little slingshot and just cap him in between the eyes? Like, that's all it took? Sometimes we underestimate what God wants to do because we're thinking it has to be some big way. Sometimes we underestimate the fact that you may see somebody in the supermarket, grocery store, hardware store this week. Their clothes may be different. And you look at them and you just give them a smile and a wave. It could change everything for that person. Because the national mood is not pro-refugee right now. And that's to our shame. Let me give you one final statistic. Since 1980 to 2015, there has been zero, zero terrorist attacks from a refugee. You say, what about San Bernardino? They were radicalized inside the United States. They were citizens of the United States. You say, what about Florida? Radicalized inside the United States. The refugees that are coming to our shores are not our threat. Now, we're not talking about illegals. We're not talking about immigrants. We're not talking about people that can get a tourist visa and be here and disappear into the wind. What we're talking about is these vetted and screened refugees that are crying to come to our shores. And what is our nation doing? We're closing the window. And why are we closing that door? Even though they're the most well-vetted, well-screened out of anybody that we vet, they're the most They're the ones we're closing the door on. The people that you say, well, it's okay. They'll figure it out. Okay. Let me tell you how they'll figure it out. They're going to spend their lives in a refugee camp. Their children will not get educated. They will not be able to work jobs. In the countries like Turkey where they're at, they're given horrible wages. What's happening is now they're forced into lives of crime and prostitution. So when we close our doors between three years of vetting Three years. This is not a tourist visa. When we close our doors, we're closing the doors and hopes for these people. You say, well, that's not why we exist. Oh, really? Really? Bring me your huddled masses that long to breathe free air. I think God's given us so much and done so much, not so that we could be comfortable. Esther was the queen, and her uncle had a reminder. Can I just tell you why you're in that position? To use your power, not for your advantage, and not to take advantage of you, but to use it to serve the least of these. So who in our community can we make a difference? Who can we show some love? Who this week can we help? You say, well, okay, how do we practically live this out? How do, how do we practically do something? Can I say this? 
this week, would you take time to go on the website of World Relief? You say, why? It's a Christian organization. It's the, one of the largest Christian organizations that strictly deals with refugees. You say, why? What, what happens if I go there? Because you can go there and they'll tell you who's flying into San Jose International Airport who's a refugee and you can be there to meet them with a sign. You could be there to help set up their apartment. You can give. You can hear stories. You can check out what's actually going on with refugees with the largest organization around the world that handles the refugee crisis. Like I said, this is not immigrants. This is not illegals. This is refugees. The refugee crisis is getting dragged through the mud right now. And it's up to the church to step up and say, wait a minute. I want to challenge my comfort. Or it could be a simple thing where you say, you know what, I'm going to get involved in my church. I'm going to start giving to missions. Our church believes in worldwide missions. So we have people that they go to foreign countries. You can start giving to that. You can start supporting when we do an event like that we're going to do in December where we're going to give out free Christmas trees to those in need. Next Sunday night, we're going to be hosting a laundry love event. We're going to pay for people's laundries that come to the laundromats. You can be a part of a national night out where we get to know our community. We get to serve them and help them. So let's not just sit here and just say, well, that was a good message. That kept me awake. Thanks. It was hot, so that was good. Let's see, what can we do? How can we actually practically live this out? The Bible says to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. This is where our faith becomes real. Can we all stand? And I'm going to ask everybody to please bow your heads and close your eyes because I want to call you out on some things. I believe the thing that stops churches is not budgets, it's not buildings, it's not people. I believe the thing that hinders churches is fear. And this week, I want to challenge you to cast out fear. Fear's last stand. This is it. So I'm going to ask you, church, please listen. How many of you this week, you say, there's something that I've been afraid to do. There's been some fear in my heart that's kept me from moving. It's kept me from serving. It's kept me from giving. And so today, I want to give that to God. Is that you? Would you lift up your hand? You say, hey, I'm done with fear. Fear will not be enthroned in my life. I've been afraid of a situation. Amen. I see those hands. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may put your hands down. Fear is abundant, but the Bible says perfect love casts out fear. God has not given us this fear, the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of sound mind. So if you're fearful, if you're afraid, if you're feeling anxiety, it is not of God this morning. So this morning, let's pray it out. Let's ask God to deliver us from it.